right, welcome back to Are We Doing This Right on WEGL 91.1. Ezra, what are we talking about this week? Our topic this week is for the public, and we're going to start with national parks. First and foremost, uh, I want to talk about the history of the national parks and the history of the national park program. And you may already be aware, uh, but Yellowstone was our nation's first national park, and that was way back in 1872. So so just to ask like a, a clarifying question there, was it like... Did the park come before the service? Did we have Yellowstone before we had such a thing as the MPS? I mean, in the sense that Yellowstone existed geographically. But like, you know, as a designated no, no, of area. Course. Uh, it actually wasn't. So so Yellowstone was what created the National Park Service. Uh, we didn't have, uh, there There were nature preserves. I'm going to talk a little bit about Yosemite um, later. But that there wasn't this idea of a national park. There wasn't this idea of like federal protected land. Um Yellowstone was by far the it was it was the first and the only reason Yellowstone became the first was because it was it's very unique geographically. I mean, there's nothing else quite like it in the United States. And was it intended to be like a recreation thing when it first started, or was it just preservation? Uh, it, it was almost like a, a novelty, like amusement type thing. Uh, it, it was acknowledged that it was kind of very unique, and I think the the long term idea was to have more and more people come out. Uh, a lot of it initially was actually like science science based because it was so unique. People wanted to kind of like study it. People wanted to see it. Uh, they they didn't want people coming in and like cutting all the trees down or anything like that. They also didn't want people getting hurt, you know, boiling mud and all that. <laughs> so Yellowstone was discovered a long time before you know the Park Service existed. Uh, in 1808, the expeditioners from the Lewis and Clark expeditions, uh, John Coulter, discovered it. And uh, it was kind of described by him as this hellscape, uh, again, due to the, the boiling mud, the spouts of water, uh, it, not, nothing anyone had ever seen before. And so he comes back after this long expedition and he tells everyone about this. And they, they said it was fictional and they mocked him for it. They, they called it Coulter's hell. They said that it was, it was in his head. Like, of course, that's not <laughs> real. The mud doesn't boil. Uh, do, do we have other areas like this in the U.S. before this point? Not in the U.S. Of course, there are other places in the world like this, but it, it wasn't right, common but this knowledge. Was mostly like uncharted, as far right. as Americans were concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. No one uh, people thought it was mythical. Oh, the water's <laughs> hot magically. No, people people had no idea. And so it wasn't until 1869, when decades, a lot of decades later, when a different group of travelers went, kind of investigating these claims that, that Coulter had made. And when they came back, they said the same thing. They backed him up and newspapers refused to publish this, saying that it was fictional and still not real. They kind of doubled down on the whole thing. Um, but this, they got more attention this time because it was a large group of people. Uh, and so the, the government commissioned Nathaniel Langford to go investigate it. And this was uh, personally for Langford. This was less because he wanted to discover the truth and more because they were constructing the railroad across the country at this time, the uh, Intercontinental Railroad. I think transcontinental. Thank you. That, that was in progress and they needed a reason. <laughs> they needed you know, ways to get tourists over. And so uh, Langford uh, thought this would be a good idea. And so he went, he recorded everything. Uh, they sent more people out. This whole process repeated. They finally got like photographs of Yellowstone and that was it. You know, I, I mean, it's pretty hard to deny. Photoshop was not a thing in the 1800s. Right. Uh, that, that was considered actual proof at that point that this was real. Uh, and so after this last expedition uh, that Langford went on where they sent out uh, photographers and artists to depict the landscape, uh, Congress almost immediately passed the Yellowstone National Park Protection Act. Um, which created the National Park Service, and uh, they 
they put Nathaniel Langford in charge as park superintendent, even though he only went on the expedition for personal wealth. He got kind of stuck there uh, supervising the park. Now, of course, the national park system has been around for a while, but it, this was kind of a, a one of its kind thing, actually. I, I wasn't aware of this. There were not other national parks, except for one exception. There was uh, a national park in Mongolia in 1783, uh, the Bogd Khan Ul National Park. But that was it. There have been no other national parks prior to then. Did you say Mongolia? Yeah, Mongolia had a national park in the 1780s. Okay, uh, okay. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't completely off base there. Right, right. No, it caught me off guard, too. Uh, uh, crazy. And I don't believe that anyone in the United States was probably aware of this national park in Mongolia when they were founding Yellowstone 100 years later. Right. But anyway, you know, credit where credit is due. Uh, Yellowstone was kind of the first big one, the one that got mainstream attention by a lot of different countries. And it sort of set this precedent. Uh, a few years later, Australia established the Royal National Park in a location that they happened to have that was quite similar to Yellowstone with a lot of uh, spouts of water, uh, hot springs. And then Canada followed suit a few years later with their own national park, uh, the Banff National Park, which I believe is still active, of course. But none of that would have happened if not for Yellowstone and, of course, the mainstream attention that Yellowstone got. It was almost this mystery uh, when it was first discovered, and, and this got picked up by people overseas and stuff. And so it really helped establish what a national park was. Of course, Yellowstone wouldn't have existed if not for the previous establishment of Yosemite as a land preservation a few years before. And this Yosemite was not a national park. It was different. It was just this land that was declared that it could not be, the trees could not be cut down. People could travel through it, but people could not build homes there, things like that. Right. It's kind of like how Bureau of Land Management operates today. They'll preserve lands and they can personally contract them out if they want to allow logging, but it is mostly under the purview of the government and it mostly just stays unused. Right. The, the whole kind of, I mean, yeah, I have to consider the context when all of this was happening. You know, America was mostly wilderness. This idea of establishing a preserve for preservation's sake was almost odd when you consider how much land was undeveloped at the time, uh, especially on the West Coast. You know, Yellowstone and Yosemite were both something special. The whole reason Yosemite got declared as a preservation was because uh, one photographer went out there with a bunch of negatives. It was almost kind of a precursor to an actual camera. I don't even know if you could call that, but it could capture negatives on plate glass. And so he got a bunch of these negatives and he uh, showed them to a senator of California at the time. And that was uh, the, the senator single-handedly basically campaigned for this, Senator John Conus. He argued that the land was not suitable. The land was not otherwise profitable. And that was the whole thing. <laughs> Thing that got them to finally say, okay, okay, we can preserve it. You, and Lincoln actually was the one who ended up signing that. During the Civil War, uh, Lincoln signed the Yosemite Grant Act, which preserved the land uh, specifically for preservation and enjoyment of the public. Of course, this led to Yellowstone, but both of these parks, so the, the kind of the, the intertwine here is both of these parks, we didn't know how to manage a preservation. We didn't know how to manage a national park, right? Uh, and so Nathaniel Langford was looking after Yellowstone, um, but while this was happening, uh, a bunch of uh, log poachers, if that's a term, I don't know what you call illegal lumberjacking. I don't know. I'd say that's about accurate. Yeah. So they, they were cutting down a bunch of giant sequoia trees in, in Yosemite. Oh, uh, I don't know how you do that on the down low. 
but th- that, that was happening. And so the United States government, uh, at this point, they converted Yosemite to a national park. They sent the United States Army in to control Yellowstone because Nathaniel Langford was having a really hard time patrolling an entire park by himself. Like, like the army. The- yeah. So okay. the army goes in, they, they build all these paths, they turn it kind of into what resembles Yellowstone today and what resembles Yosemite today. They turned it from just like a, 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 an invisible fence around a land to a place with actual buildings, watchtowers with, with bridges. Um, keep in mind, the army wasn't like armed doing this the concern was not that they needed to drive the poachers out with guns it was still the army right right but they they needed a lot of people to really get the ball rolling there because who would have thought one guy could not protect yosemite by himself or yellowstone by himself woodrow wilson was president while this was happening and this is where they took the time to establish national park service and really cement what a national park is and so specifically, they described it as the National Park Service's purpose is to conserve the scenery, the natural and historic objects, and the wildlife. And today, they oversee 417 parks. They receive 330 million visits a year. So this all started as kind of an experiment in conservation. It wasn't really necessary at the time because there was so much wilderness. There's so much unexplored territory. But it's kind of become a staple of the American landscape. And as things become more and more uh, industrialized. I mean, all over the world, you know, national parks are how we preserve land. When we come back, the National Register of Historic Places. Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right? All right, so you've just spent a bunch of time talking about the National Park Service. This is going to be about a specific offshoot of the National Park Service. So have you ever um, been driving through, especially where we grew up, Birmingham, and seen the like markers on the fronts of older buildings or some houses downtown? Right, right. Those like big historic markers that they have. Right. They're like cast iron signs. Right. Have you ever wondered like where those come from or when we started doing that? Honestly, I've never really thought about it much. Right. I mean, neither had I until I like knew that the National Register existed. So to quote the National Register of Historic Places itself, its mission is to be an official list of the nation's historic places worthy of preservation and, quote, part of a national program to identify, evaluate, and protect America's historic and archaeological resources. So we're most used to seeing these on, like, buildings, or we were Boy Scouts, so, like, Civil War battlefields. Of course. But it also is not just that kind of stuff. It's also stuff that's much older than, you know... uh a European civilization here, that kind of thing. The preservation is much broader than most people would realize. And the marker program actually only covers a, a very small portion of it, believe it or not. So the, the first American markers started in the early 1880s after very similar efforts in England, like a lot of things. Um, the English marker system started in the 1860s with the concept of standardized historical markers. You started seeing these pop up across the country there, but they hadn't been standardized in any way. They were different city to city, and there was no like governing body, so to speak, of these markers. Um, the concept grew in popularity until the early 1900s. This is when you really start getting people more uh, interested in preserving sites and antiquities. There's a lot of growing patriotism in the U.S. with the turn of the century and industrialization. And so that kind of leads to that interest. And we'll see that as a, a continuing theme throughout these stories. 
1906, the actual National Register of Historic Places was signed into law by a bill for the first time that we actually had a national governing body for these. So they existed a long time before there was an actual governing body regulating it. Exactly. And it's not even just the the register. It's about preservation in general. So we weren't necessarily interested in that before then. Kind of like your example with uh, Yosemite. If it wasn't profitable, we didn't necessarily preserve it. But as the turn of the century happened, we started, attitudes started changing towards how we viewed our history and our antiques. Right. So when that act happened in 1906, the president now had the power to create something called a national monument. Now, do you know what the difference between a national park and a national monument is? Uh, Is it man-made versus natural or is it different? It kind of close. A park is intended primarily for uh, recreation. So things like Yellowstone would be a park. It's mainly intended for people to go there as like a trip. Um, A monument is more about preservation. So it's not necessarily you go there, there's activities, there's campgrounds, that kind of thing. It's more we need to preserve this space. That's why it falls under like archaeological sites. Those can be national monuments or um, you see a lot of sacred land for Native Americans. Um, Those can be sometimes designated as monuments, which has been quite a bit of controversy in recent years. So this power actually expanded with the creation of the National Park Service. Do you remember exactly what year that was? I only have it written as the 30s. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, so sometime in the 30s when the National Park Service was created, this power expanded even more. And the National Park Service itself began being able to designate a site as one of national significance. That's the, you know, air quotes around the exact language that they use. Right. So on a state level, you start seeing programs as early as the 1920s and expanding really greatly after World War II. You remember how I mentioned that the entirety of this started taking off at the turn of the century? Well, after World War II, you have the same conditions. We're seeing increased patriotism, increased interest in America's history after the war. And you're also seeing the other thing that this coincides with, which is more people having access to resources and automobiles. So more people have the time to take vacation, have the ability to take vacation, and have cars that can achieve actually driving long distances, which was a big deal once the 50s happened. Just Right. Well, that sounds a lot more viable than people taking trains like across the country or however else people... It became more affordable by the masses to, to go look at something for the sake of looking at it. Right. And even then, this is literally tied to like automotive technology. Like if you tried to take a Model T cross country, God help you. Um, the 1950s, this was the first time that this was really plausible for most vehicles at most price points to, oh yeah, you can just drive, just go 3,000 miles. Why not? Hit it. Right. And I imagine, you know interstates and stuff also played a big role in that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But on the national level, this marker program, all these were still not really like codified in any way. They were still just kind of operating on a state by state with the markers and the national monument system, which is not the same as the markers or the National Register of Historic Places. Totally separate programs. It took the National Park Service until 1960 to issue any sort of a marker. And even then, we still didn't have a register of all of them. It was just the first time they put sign in ground was 1960. In 1965 is when you actually get the bill signing the National Register of Historic Places, which in this case is literally a list of all of those markers and monuments into law and allowing that to be like tracked and controlled by the government. So I assume a lot of that was retroactive and that they have already 
put a lot of these signs in the ground and then they had to go and make sure they were all documented somewhere. Absolutely. I'll, I'll probably talk about that a little bit more later, but they're pretty sure that there's some that still are not fully documented, especially the, the earliest ones, like I said, right around the, 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 the turn of the century. So yeah, we still don't necessarily know where all of them are and it's a lot of volunteers. So in the spreadsheet that I was able to get on the internet, thank you, internet, there are, and I quote, 95,354 recognized sites on the register. And I pulled that number about a year ago, so I don't really know if that's still accurate. But you get the scale of this program, how many there are just on the national level. That's not even counting the ones that are only recognized by the state, or in our cases, most of the markers that we see by the county. Right. This includes modern sites and the sites in the window between the creation of the National Park Service and 1965 when the register was created. So we still don't necessarily have the stuff that happened before 1930 because those weren't necessarily nationally sanctioned. The register also isn't just about the plaque. This was something that was the most surprising to me. So you don't realize this, but it also gives you access to like grants and different funding for your site and for preservation because... Well, that's the point of the program is preserving these sites. So it's, I thought it was just the sign in the ground and getting yourself on a list, but no, it actually allows you to much better handle that site and kind of keep it maintained for future generations, which makes sense now that I know it's part of the National Park Service. Right. It's deeper than just uh, your name on a list and a, and a little marker. Absolutely. So there is a 20% federal tax credit for quote-unquote preservation activities. This would be like renovations, landscaping, just general upkeep, or anything really that you could cite as preservation. But 20%, that's hefty for the federal level, um, especially for something that's you know not for profit. Right. It can also mean that you can get like code variances for your old structure. So if you can't make your building meet fire code, then if you are on the register, you can probably just get them to ignore that on the state level. Doesn't make you safer, but you also don't have to drill giant holes in your ceiling in order to run sprinklers through your 200-year-old house. Gets the idea across. Right. I imagine a lot of uh, historic monuments are not exactly conducive to modern fire safety yeah. standards. Oh, yeah. And in the, the other one, it really varies a lot depending on your state and your county, but you can also get access to funding on those levels by being either on the National Register or on your state's register. But that's going to vary depending on where you live, like even specifically down to your town. And the point of this entire program, at least from the government's perspective, is to encourage investment in historic sites by private individuals. So it's not necessarily about federal funding all the time, but it's about saying, hey, you know, people who live here can handle this. Right. And right. we're going to protect this and make sure it gets handled. So the question that we're all asking, how do you get on the register? Well... There are four main criteria. Criteria A, an event. A significant historic event happened here. So all those Civil War battlefields, that kind of thing, you get the idea. Criteria B, notable historic person. So if like an ex-president lived here, I'm, I can't think of anyone's house that I've specifically been to. But if someone lived there, you can get on the register. Criteria C, design and constructions. So this one's a little bit weird and we don't think about it as much. Um, it's mainly for architecture or sculptures. So like uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water, it's still standing and it is on the National Register of Historic Places because of its important architecture. 
And category D, information potential. This is just those archeological sites. So not even necessarily a full-on structure, but if it has potential to be archeologically significant, then yes, that can get on the register as well. So the really easy part of this is actually, once you have one of those uh, certified, is it's really just paperwork from there. You fill out a nomination form about the site, why it represent or why it uh, warrants preservation. I think it may be three or four pages. It's been a while since I looked at the form. Um, this includes age, what criteria you cover, specifically where you are, that kind of thing. Right. Like why you think it's significant. Yep. And then you send that to the National Park Service and they answer within 45 days about whether or not you're on the register. So it really is that simple. As long as you meet the criteria, you can get on it, which is, again, why there are upwards of 95,000 of them. All right, so the, the thing we've been talking about as the most like visible outward sign of this since the beginning are the roadside markers, the cast iron signs that we pound into the ground, as you and I have been saying this entire time. These are as old as the program. Um, they're usually furnished by the state or the county and usually have to go through them before getting registered to the NRHP, like I mentioned. So if you're on a national site, you're probably also registered with your state. But the national program doesn't really furnish these markers unless it's something that's national only, which is pretty rare. Right. Um, that would be like federally controlled, like if you're in D.C. or something like that. Um, I actually found something while I was researching this that I'd never heard of before. But there's this hobby of collecting markers, so to speak. So there's a community of people online that just tries to go and find as many of these markers as possible. Or if there's one that somebody thinks that there's one or they can see it on a register, but there's like no picture, they don't have evidence of it, you may get something as little as GPS coordinates and you can go out and find them. Um, currently on the site I looked at, there are over 132,000 markers on you know national, state, county level, all collected by volunteers completely for free. And that was one website that I went on. Right. And that's 132,000 examples of history kept just purely in the public interest. No one is making money off these at all. And it's just for the public good. When we come back, defunct government agencies. Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right? Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about defunct government agencies, the, the weird ones, the bizarre ones. So we, we've had quite a few. Yeah, before we start, can I just ask what you mean by, like, defunct? Like As in no longer active, uh, canceled or otherwise uh, merged with other services, eliminated. In, in the case of the ones that I want to talk about today, mostly eliminated. So uh, through the years, you know, we, we've had a handful of strange ones. We've had the FTP, the Federal Theater Project, which is exactly what it sounds like, a federal government organization uh, overseeing and, and putting on the production of theatrics, musicals and whatnot. Was this like in the States? What do you mean in the States? Like, like was this a, like... When I think of stuff like that, I imagine it's like, oh, that would be reasonable if it was like DC only, but it was like, oh no, no, this was this was all over. It actually makes sense in the context. It was during the Great Depression, ah, gotcha. um, so th there was not that much going on, but still odd to think that government officials putting on shows. Yeah, um, but no, this this was in the states. This that was national. 
Uh, and then there's also the board, the BEW or the Board of Economic Warfare, which has kind of their their purpose kind of still exists. They've just been split off, uh, but but they are definitely defunct, as as it sounds like. Uh, they were kind of strategists behind economic warfare with other nations. Okay. Uh, kind of an odd espionage type thing. Uh, very Cold War esque. Yeah. Uh, but I'm mostly gonna focus on my personal favorite, the BTE or the Board of Tea Experts. <sighs> okay. Why did we need a Board of Tea Experts? So this was arguably the least important government department. In the United States, maybe ever. But you have to consider that, at least when it was founded, an emphasis on when it was founded, the BTE was around for a long time. There was no FDA. There was no regulation over the... I mean, tea is something that's going to be imported, right? Right. Uh, There was no regulation at all initially for that. That doesn't necessarily mean that we needed a board of tea experts, but rather there was certainly some demand to make sure that what people were drinking was not going to poison them. Now, did they have this kind of thing for other imported foods? Like, what was special about tea? Oh, most certainly not. Good. Not initially. Again, you know, we had the FDA not too, too long after. I think it was maybe just due to... That might... I I don't have a specific answer, but I'm inclined to say that might be like a wealth thing. Uh, Tea would be a relatively expensive product, even at the time. Uh, So I think that there would still be... That that may have been a factor in getting this on the payroll. The whole idea behind the board was to assist the public, not just in the regulation of like... Not not really in regulating tea, but more in in judging it. To quote uh, some newspapers at the time, there was a common fear that tea would be little better than hay or catnip. All right. Important question, just to interrupt you a little bit. Of course. Was the board of tea experts made up of people importing tea? Was this industry people or was this like, was this the industry regulating itself or was these just like randos who really oh, these cared about were, tea? These were definitely randos who really cared about tea. Good. That there makes were, it even better. <laughs> there were not in the industry. So later on uh, in, in the, the late lifespan of the board of tea experts, the industry kind of weighed in and got involved. Uh, but no, initially, no. It, it is exactly what it sounds like. It was dozens of people in suits sitting around in, quote, the tea room, <laughs> examining and rigorously debating for days the quality of all. They would meet a few times a year and they would establish all of the tea that would be allowed to be sold and imported based not necessarily on its safety, you know, right. but rather whether or not they enjoyed it. Good. Okay. So they wouldn't just taste them. They would also smell and feel the tea leaves. Uh, they would do that thing that sommeliers do where they kind of slurp the tea, you know. Uh, it aerates it. Makes yeah, it taste yeah, of course. The, the quote unquote best teas chosen by the experts. Again, emphasis on these were the only teas that would be allowed to be imported. Uh, and this board was in operation. So like I said, 1897 is when they got started. 99 years. No. 1996 is when the Board of Tea Experts was disbanded. It took us until... We had the FDA yes. for a long time. Yes. And it took us until 96... It took until Clinton? Yeah. Clinton got rid of the Board of Tea Experts. Nixon attempted to get rid of the Board of Tea Experts, and uh, Carter attempted to get rid of the Board of Tea Experts, they and had neither one sway. could. They had more sway than Richard Nixon. Yeah. Jeez. 
So the board of tea experts, uh, believe it or not, as silly as they may sound, they actually had a big impact for a pretty long time. They, they did impact the average life, at least the average life of a tea drinking American. So you're familiar with pure tea, right? Right. So uh, for years, the board of tea experts just flat out banned the importation and sale of this tea, not because it was a risk or something, but because they didn't like the taste. They thought it was a little bit too musty, so you couldn't buy it. Yeah, that sounds about right, honestly. But Puer, I guess, if you're not familiar with it, Puer is it's like a fermented tea product. So it's going to be a little funky, but that's kind of the the point right well it seems obviously in hindsight odd to ban something like that on personal preference right but let it be known so the board of tea experts actually did do some public good so one example would be the uh, supreme court case which upheld the board of tea experts authority to outlaw substandard tea and so in this instance uh, it, it was the distribution of Hino tea uh, which was made from Kentucky bluegrass which I would like to emphasize is not tea. Right. And so the attorney in this court case actually argued that they should be allowed to continue to sell it because the name reflects that it was hay and not tea. This was argued in a court of law. So would this did that decision also ban like other herbal teas? Or no, was it specifically just that one because okay. it wasn't tea. It was literally grass. Right. But like uh, most herbals aren't like they're not the, the tea plant. I, well, in this specific instance, people would get very sick uh drinking the tea yeah that makes sense it was uh it was kind of a uh, it is grass <laughs> right right uh so the the board of tea experts weighed in on that supreme court case they were like called in to investigate the tea and you know they came to the conclusion that it wasn't near the end of the lifespan of the board of tea experts i was able to find a reporter's account of the inner workings of the program i found this on a physical newspaper archive uh we did a deep dive for like this you one. had to go there no, I wish. I had to oh. <laughs> look at scans of the newspaper. Not that cool. It accounts how they met two times a year at this point, and the reporter specifically described the members of the board as Victorian and like something out of a Charles Dickens story. And what year was this? Uh, I think this was like 95. 95? <laughs> this was a little bit before they got disbanded. They were, they were kind of in the, the, they were in the crosshairs for a little bit because they were pointed out as this example of government waste. Right understandably. And so the the executive secretary, Robert H. Dick at the time, discussed how they, they needed to specifically get a building with a big bright window because he needed a north light to properly assess the color of the tea that he was drinking. Uh, uh, you mentioned herbal tea earlier. One, one board member during this interview when the reporter was going in and talking with these people, he kind of like laughed maniacally talking about how herbal tea is not real tea. <laughs> Another another board member expressed his desire to gargle the tea to properly assess the flavor. I, I believe the board got more 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 fringe as time went on. They, they just seem like a very deeply not not to make assumptions about the individuals' characters, but they seem like a very deeply unpleasant group. For sure. I mean, and they would still up until the very end, they would still show up in these luxurious suits to do all their 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 tea testing. They they lamented that. Because of like budget cuts and because they were in the crosshairs for so long, they were no longer able to test every single tea coming in and out of the country like they used to, every single type. So like I said, Nixon and Carter tried to disband it. Clinton succeeded in his first term. And uh, despite only operating for two days out of the year, they cost the taxpayer approximately $200,000. Like 100000 As in that's how much money they took in two days. Like a a hundred thousand dollars a day for tea tasting. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I see why we got rid of these guys. So uh, upon the repeal, the Tea Association of the USA, which I didn't know existed, some of the board members were on. Uh, they they wrote uh, a letter, a public like uh, an open letter, stating the Tea Act uh, stands as the first line of defense against terrorist threats to contaminate tea. Several industry executives, or I guess not industry executives, but industry spokespeople, stated that with the board of tea experts no longer being around, they would be forced to test their own tea. You know, they would have to pass on these costs and that it would actually be more expensive oh no right oh we don't have men in suits to test our tea for us i'll have to pay two cents extra a bag to prevent terrorism (laughs) (laughs) that's an insane statement to make like just seriously right at face value yeah (laughs) like they meant that to my knowledge, by the way, for the record, I do not believe there have been any terrorist threats directly involving tea. I'm sure But I would not. love to be proven wrong that if would be, there was. You know, really stupid. <laughs> so while the loss of the the board of tea experts definitely hasn't impacted the life of everyday Americans in any way, uh, this this bizarre government program has a very long lasting legacy. Regardless, when we come back, public broadcasting. So this next topic is something that's kind of near and dear to my heart as a person who is a pretty big part of a non-commercial educational station, or at least that's part of our mission. And even before I joined Weagle, I think you and I were both big NPR listeners. I especially was in high school, and that kind of was a big part of what led us to doing this show in the first place. So I want to talk about the origins of public broadcasting in the United States and how those origins relate to the earliest forms of radio in the United States. So talk radio broadcasting in the U.S. started in the mid to late 1910s. This is still pretty early days for radio. Uh, We didn't start regulating it until 1906, And even then, it still wasn't really voice or music broadcasts yet. It was mostly just Morse code for ships at sea, that kind of thing. Um, We started getting more and more experiments until we were starting to reliably uh, transmit sound in, like I said, the mid to late 1910s. The big development, though, was 1920. This was the first news broadcast, the first entertainment broadcast, which, you know, included like music and uh, comedy, that kind of thing. And the first college station, surprisingly. Um, these college stations actually banded together early on and created something called the Association of Educational Broadcasters, which is pretty important to the story. And from now on, I will be referring to them as the AEB. The idea for public and educational broadcasting goes back to the AEB in the mid-20s. Colleges wanted something that was a little bit less regulated than what was on air. And they wanted to be able to compete with the super stations of the day. So extremely high powered radio stations that could cover a large swath of the U.S. Where colleges just wouldn't have that kind of resources to be able to do that. And they wouldn't be motivated by the commercial interests of those stations. Now, they were able to reserve some as far as I know. But they didn't really have much sway until the 1940s. And this is the biggest boon for this kind of thing. Um, In the 40s, we start seeing FM broadcasting. It wasn't widespread at all, especially because of World War II. That definitely slowed down adoption. But um, the AEB was able to have enough sway with the FCC at that point 
to reserve some frequency space for uh, non-commercial educational broadcasting at the bottom end of the dial. That's why uh, usually things like NPR or uh, especially places like us are down at the lower end. Like the uh, NPR station in Birmingham is 90.3. We're 91.1. We are at the low end of the frequency range for FM radio in the United States. And until about the the 1960s, that was really the extent of government interaction with it. It was, okay, you have this reserved frequency space with slightly different licensing than most of these other stations. Go for it. Public, educational, non-commercial, that's all yours. Um, The biggest thing that changed that was the introduction of television. And as television grew more popular, commercial programming made it harder for primarily educational uh, stations to survive for a lot of the same reasons. It just doesn't rake in as much money. And running any of these stations is very expensive, as is pretty obvious. And it wasn't just funding. From the viewer side, commercial stations had much better production, so it was just more enjoyable to watch, regardless of the content. It was just better made because they had better resources, not just literally running the station money. Um, After a study by the Carnegie Corporation, legislation set out to kind of level things out and allow educational broadcasting to survive, which is, as we have been talking about this entire show, in the interest of the public good. So in 1967, the Public Broadcasting Act was signed into law by LBJ. Um, It was mainly concerned with television due to its popularity, like I said, but radio was added to the deal kind of at the last minute. But it was, again, that same idea. If we want this to survive, we need to add this to it and protect it. The biggest change from this law was the creation of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which is a government-controlled corporation that directly provides funds to non-commercial and educational broadcasters with the intent of furthering media produced in the public interest. So if you remember watching PBS when you were a little kid, you probably have heard of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and Viewers by You. Um, That is an important thing to note right up front. They don't get all their funding from the CPB, but it is a significant source for uh, both NPR and PBS. So PBS was the successor to an earlier network called NET, which stood for National Educational Television, which was largely supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Now, NET itself deserves its own show. There is so much to it, but you can thank it for early syndication of things like Sesame Street, and it really laid the groundwork for how public television is supposed to work in the United States. And like I mentioned earlier, PBS is a completely private corporation that receives funding from both private sources and the government through the CPB. They are not government-run at all, and they only receive some government funding. NPR was created in a similar fashion to PBS, except it grew out of the AEB instead of NET. So again, we're still seeing ripples of those early college stations banding together to protect non-commercial and educational radio. So how do both of these work in the modern day? So both NPR and PBS act like traditional broadcast networks. They pay for production of content and syndicate things that they already own through their member stations, which are independently run but dependent on the larger corporation. This is why they have their own funding drives, but they also do receive um, some funding from the corporation for public broadcasting. Now, that really depends on where they are, how much they receive. It's mostly need-based, so more rural stations will receive more federal funding, where something like WBHM in Birmingham receives less because they have more donors who can give them money. What they do differently from a normal broadcast network is that they actually rely on those member stations for uh, local content for syndication. So instead of it being produced by an outside production company, it is created at those stations. 
So things like PBS's News Hour is from WETA in Virginia and WNET in NYC. And uh, NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross is from WHYY in Philadelphia. Currently, NPR alone has over 900 member stations and PBS has over 300 itself. Their content is very high quality and highly varied between stations. And it really couldn't exist in a purely commercial market. And while I clearly appreciate this content and I think it's a good thing, their funding is obviously not uncontroversial. According to the CPB, 71% of its budget of $445 million is delivered directly to member stations. So that's like I mentioned the situation with uh, NPR earlier. So depending on how much they receive in donations, it's need-based for those individual stations. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting accounts for 10 to 15% of revenue for NPR, PBS, and their member stations which is not insignificant, but it's less than I thought going into this, less than I would have realized. So why is it every year that the argument to defund gets made? Like I mentioned, NPR and PBS could potentially survive without that part of their budget. It would They would have to make changes, but they could survive. And, and what we primarily lose is not those federal organizations. It's like I keep mentioning those stations in already underserved, already economically depressed areas. So it, it's not even the larger stations that we would that would be in trouble from this. The argument to defund is usually from groups that think government funding as a waste in general, or as one organization claiming to be a centrist media watchdog that the government shouldn't be funding, and I quote here, this is not what I believe, a liberal propaganda machine, which is just disingenuous on its face. Um, Corporation for Public Broadcasting actually has very strict objectivity and anti-bias requirements for news programs far stricter than any of the privately held networks. Which makes sense, because they don't have a commercial interest with their advertisers, with their donors, with their funding. They are forced to be as neutral as possible, which makes them one of the more reliable news sources on either side. So largely, I'm in support of the continuing existence of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Now, I've been really focusing on them, because that's most people's entire... uh, interaction with public broadcasting, but there's a whole world outside of their specific bubble in non-commercial radio and non-commercial TV, including Weagle and most college radio stations. So Weagle specifically is a class A non-commercial and it's part of our license that we actually have to act in the public interest. That's why we run things like news minutes. That's why we run PSAs instead of commercial breaks every 15 minutes. And even if we have ads, we have to follow very specific requirements in order for them to be okay for our licenses. And of course, the fact that I'm sitting here kind of points to the idea that I love non-commercial radio. I wouldn't be here producing this show, at least for free, if it weren't for all the NPR I listened to growing up, if if it weren't for the college stations that I was able to pick up on and all the other stuff going on at Weagle. If, if we had somebody dictating what goes on this show, what goes on any of our shows, to make advertisers happy, I don't think we would have half the people at this station. I think that's what makes it special. And the fact that we have to operate specifically in the public interest is what makes that possible. Well, thank you for listening to Are We Doing This Right? You can hear us every Sunday at 3 on WEGL 91.1 in Auburn or online at WEGLFM.com. You can also listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for AWDTR. I'm Grayson. I'm Ezra. Thank you for listening. You can recognize a change in